0: I'm Alex Mosad, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Today, we have some S1s to dive into. Uh, DoorDash and uh, Airbnb have both filed their S1s to IPO in the coming weeks. We actually have the filings, and we're going to dive on into those. It is likely that both of these platforms will check out, will eventually be included in PLAT when we uh, when, when, whenever plat rebalances, but these are definitely platform businesses. And um, I would presume as we do our checks and, and run through our process that, you know, everything would would uh, qualify them as such. So, So the first one today is DoorDash. Here's their S1. And what you can see is,
1: I mean, they put some nice imagery, but the real thing, to me is this chart. Look at this chart. This chart, you can see January
0: 2018 uh, through October 2020. It went from 17% market share to 50% market share. Greater than Uber Eats, greater than Grubhub, greater than actually uh, both of those things combined. This is the money slide. If, I, if I'm the DoorDash executives, um, that's why it's on page three. Is because uh, clearly what they've been able to do over the past few years um, is pretty impressive. So how have they been able to do that? Now, I think that's the question. Right? How how do they beat Uber? How do they beat GrubHub? You know, many people from urban cities might not be as familiar with DoorDash. Uh, the reason because, and this guy does a good job on Twitter of discussing this, so he says here, Dash just posted their prospectus, and it's a great one. The company went from almost going bankrupt with a down round in 2016 to taking Grub's market share uh, from over eighty percent to eleven percent in the course of four years. Now, to be fair, it wasn't just Doordash, it was also Uber Eats, postmates, uh, caviar, and others that you know that that have Come from behind to to dethrone Grubhub. Grubhub and Seamless were strong in the cities, which you could also say was an Uber Eats strategy, was a Postmates strategy, was a Caviar strategy. You know, Caviar's big move was to go into New York City. They started in San Francisco. Uh, one of the co-founders, um, you know, is is an advisor with Applico. so we know the food business very well. Caviar's big thing was. We have to go into New York City, right? If we can't take New York City, then we're not worth, you know, we we aren't actually good at, at at what we do. We have to go into you know the big the big city and prove ourselves. Worked out for caviar, and they got acquired by Square, uh, for I think maybe roughly a hundred million dollars, and then Square sold them off for I think four hundred million dollars. There's now three big players: there's Uber Eats, Grubhub, uh, which was recently merged and acquired with the with a, a European entity um, that's that's strong internationally, and then um, DoorDash. Now, how did DoorDash get you know fifty percent market share? So, what this guy is touching on, I think, is correct. Uh, take his first few tweets with a grain of salt, but here, DoorDash's first insight was that if you could provide last mile logistics to restaurants, you could target a new of restaurants and customer base in suburban and rural geographies everyone in the industry thought there was no demand there and that the economics wouldn't work in low density areas this is true this is very true when you would speak to again look at caviar strategy we got to go into new york city look at where uber eats focus look at where postmates focus it's on these just ultra high density urban environments doordash actually said um, we're going to go in the other direction. We're going to go to suburbia, and we're going to, uh, you know, go into these low density populations. The thing that Uber Eats and DoorDash both did, which is what we covered with with Grubhub doing, where um, you know, Grubhub's model was really more of a two sided marketplace. They had restaurant and they had customer, and the fulfillment, the delivery, last mile logistics was left up to the restaurant to figure out that's kind of the traditional grubhub model they had partner restaurants grub had, grubhub was profitable they had very nice margins um and you know their growth was more sluggish because they needed a restaurant to sign up into the program the difference here is that both uber eats postmates um Caviar, and uh, DoorDash said is this idea of bringing your own fulfillment to the table, solving that last mile logistics for the restaurants. Because what that lets you do is it lets you get supply from restaurants that might not want to join your platform, right? And so first they rolled out an over-the-top business where they added tens of thousands of restaurants without an official partnership. That's nothing new. That's nothing unique to DoorDash. We've seen all the you know, uh, new competitors to Grubhub take a, a similar strategy. When Grubhub CEO Matt Maloney, I want to say it must have been roughly a year ago now, maybe like October of 2019 on their Q3 earnings call, Matt Maloney announced that they're going to have, you know, that they need to compete against this three-sided model where, where the marketplace is coordinating fulfillment in addition to um, just connecting restaurants and customers. And that is a much less profitable if not unprofitable business model um but they had to do it because they were seeing he was talking about their cohort analysis right they were looking at their retention of existing and new users and their retention was getting was it was starting to get pretty leaky it was because these three-sided delivery uh platforms were able to get unique supply bring that supply to the consumers and the consumers wanted that unique supply Grubhub wasn't able to stay competitive because they weren't able to uh, have parity on supply because they didn't have this kind of over the top delivery model and onboard all these restaurants that weren't weren't going to join Grubhub's kind of official partner program. Okay, so but but really the story of DoorDash and these other platforms is you know you had Grub Uber again all the all the typical players competing aggressively in the urban environments, the aggressors doing over-the-top delivery three-sided marketplace to go up against two-sided marketplace kind of slower growth Grubhub but profitable. And what you saw was that the incumbent Grubhub lost market share pretty aggressively to the up-and-coming over-the-top three-sided food delivery marketplaces uh, in urban environments. But they all kind of neglected, to a certain degree, you know, not totally neglected, but none of them, I guess, put the same level of emphasis on suburbia that DoorDash did. And I think that's the main takeaway. You say, how did DoorDash get fifty percent market share in roughly two and a half years uh, against, you know, Uber platform conglomerate, GrubHub public company, you know, uh, real serious competitors? They went to suburbia. They 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 brought this over the top model to suburbia. As they started to do over the top, they they seeded the market right. They got that initial supply. They got a lot of those unique restaurants that didn't you know they didn't want to figure out how to do last mile logistics in in a suburban environment. Uh, this was me ragging on Domino's uh, many episodes ago, saying, "Well, Domino's could have done this, right? Why didn't Domino's do this? They literally have last mile logistics in suburbia." Well, you know, turns out. DoorDash did it. It was really to me the killer app, the killer kind of hook was the over the top delivery in suburbia. And that is the thing that jump started the network. That is the thing that got them the supply in these tens of thousands of restaurants without an official partnership. And then to this guy's next second point is then they went and signed several large chain partnerships like Chipotle, Wendy's, and others. And then that helped to Supercharged demand. These were the types of restaurants that people in those geographies preferred. These were acquisition rocket ships. Once they had the best restaurant selection, they started executing brilliantly on national brand and performance marketing campaigns, including with their chain partners. Right. So doing like co-opted advertising uh, with these large chains, and you know, and 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 it's kind of an outside-in strategy. Right. They they started suburbia. They started uh, more. In rural areas, and now they got all that scale, and now they can go and siege the the urban, uh, you know, the urban geographies. Guess who bought caviar for four hundred million dollars? This was August of twenty nineteen. DoorDash did, right? And I think the interesting thing there is that DoorDash was saying, "Hey, we're getting really strong traction in suburbia." Caviar owned by Square, you know, Square made made some money, two hundred million dollars, not bad. Um, but they weren't in the fight for the long haul on food delivery. And caviar had had and still does have pretty decent penetration in urban environments. So I think you know caviar it w- was the beginning of where you see now DoorDash going more aggressively into urban and high-density populations, bringing some of that existing. Caviar has, still does, has a lot of those really nice kind of specialty restaurants in urban environments. So, you know, I really like how DoorDash has gone about this Um, strategically. I just think, you know, it's very strong. I'm kind of a little surprised that the Grubhub folks, the Uber Eats folks, uh, let this go on so long unabated. I mean, Uber Eats, obviously, like McDonald's, I mean, they have been trying to do things more aggressively in suburbia. But this, to me, was a battle of uh, who wins suburbia and DoorDash. Is winning that battle. Um, and I think you know what that means for me long term on Doordash is I think it sets them up very nicely to really compete here and and hold their own. We also had uh our principal, Tree Tran, was uh quoted in this Bloomberg article. Tree is the co founder, former CEO of Buntree, joined us a few years ago. Guy's amazing, uh, understands food and food marketplaces better than probably anyone on the planet. You know, this, they pick tree's mind here on, you know, uh on on the COVID pandemic bump and you know what that means for um for DoorDash. Will will that sustain itself? I mean, and and I think this gets to the the not so rosy kind of picture of this, right? Which is that despite and this is what kind of tree gets to in the articles, DoorDash has performed extremely well, I would say, against the competition. They've got some great you know, great platform graphs in here. Look at this network effects, supply side network effects. And look at this, right? Um, ben Thompson would not like this chart right now. Uh, more merchants equals more consumers. Look at that little self fulfilling prophecy there. The, the power of supply side network effects, right, is, is it cannot be um, understated. So they've got, there's a bunch of really good material in here. Um, but let's let's jump to the numbers. Uh, and, and I think this is where, you know, it doesn't get at eh, eh, <laughs> you know, it's just
1: food's a tough business. You look at the numbers Right? You see that? 158 million
0: loss, 2018. 475 million loss 2019. They're aggressively ramping. Revenue growth. Look at that. $2.8 billion in GMV in 2018, $8 billion in GMV in 2019. That's huge. And Uber Eats is there. Grubhub is there. Despite all of that, they have insane GMV growth, but it costs the money. Contribution loss as a percentage of marketplace GMV. See, uh, they're saying that stays constant, but contribution contribution margin is going down. Contribution margin, you know, when you have these GMV numbers, is a key key stat to look at. The economics and food are tough. They are now profitable, ninety five million dollars in profit. But, but look at this number: sixteen point five billion dollars in GMV in the first nine months of of twenty twenty. That's triple what they had in the first nine months of 2019. See, they go from a negative contribution margin in the, from which it was actually 32%. Mm, that's interesting. In the first nine months of 2019 to positive 23%. It takes huge scale for these businesses to be profitable. Clearly. And because of the COVID bump, and this is what Tree was getting at in that article, you see. DoorDash, just barely profitable with insane growth, right? Like more than uh, more than doubling their 2019 GMV in just the first nine months of this year. Why? Because of COVID. So, you know, the question is how long are you, are you going to have that level of, A, just that increase, that huge demand increase? You know how long is that going to stick around for uh that's one solving function, and then you know are you going to be able to keep as strong of a of a you know of a of a dominant position in suburbia while also penetrating into urban more dense environments? I mean that really is the question here for Doordash. We will see where they price this. Um, you know, because that's obviously you know <laughs> the magic. And again, DoorDash, you know, does not have uh it's not a platform conglomerate. This is their be all end all food delivery. You know, we'll see where we pri- where they price it, and you know, I can give you a better perspective on uh you know if I think it's well priced or not. But I would say in terms of the DoorDash management, I would say strategically them uh, executing on a strategy outmaneuvering very formidable competitors, I give them a pluses. It really is impressive what they've done. See where the pricing comes in, and and just the food market is a tough industry. But again, just from this analysis, you know I would give the management very strong marks. Next topic, let's look at Airbnb. So Airbnb just filed, I think um,
1: Monday night. And you know, I'm sure everyone knows the story of Airbnb. Let's go to the
0: money slide. Okay, this money slide is not as pretty as DoorDash's money slide. This is page 11. They don't have a page three like this is page 10. Uh, They don't have a page three, you know, banner slide. You're like, wow. Okay, good job, guys. Um, This slide is a little bit more muddied, and rightly
1: so. The key thing here is. Gross bookings value. Okay. October,
0: 3.4, I'm going to, yeah, $3.4 billion in, in gross bookings. So this is their version of GMB. 3.1, 3.1, this is November, December 2019. 4.7 in January. 4.0 in February. Bam, COVID hits. 2.0 in March, mm, 800 million in April, and then May 2.2 billion, June 3.8, July 3.8, August 3.4, September 3.1. When you read through the narrative um, on this, you know in this S1, what you'll see is that you have you have Airbnb management saying, "Hey, look, we're we're pretty much back." at like pre-pandemic levels, right? Hey, we're back at 3.8, 3.4, 3.1. Interestingly, they don't show you this level of breakdown. Um, you know, they just give you 12 months. They, they don't show you the trend line pre-October, right? What was September, August, July of 2019? I don't know. Great question. They're not going to show me. Um, so what is the narrative that goes along with These numbers. And so the management at Airbnb tries to fill some of that in for us. Obviously, they talk about, you know, COVID and 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 the devastating impact that's had on the travel industry. But why did this rebound? They do touch on that. Domestic travel represents travel within the same country. While air, while air and cross-border international travel has been significantly impacted by COVID, domestic travel around the world has been extremely resilient. Right? So traveling, say within the United States or within your country. Short distance travel within 50 miles of guest origin has been highly resilient, even at the peak of business interruption in April. So, uh, and then then here, travel outside of our top cities has been more resilient than those booked in our top 20 cities. Long-term stays, at least 29 nights, right? So these are like month plus long stays. Long-term stays are one of our fastest growing categories in 2019. As guests increasingly chose Airbnb listings to meet their needs for stays of greater length. So what they're trying to say here is, hey, we're really well positioned for COVID because, you know, you got people. Everyone knows this, right? You got the migration out of hugely dense cities. Also going back to the DoorDash topic. Good for Doordash, right? Very bad for Airbnb. These cities were, you know, if you think about Airbnb's value prop and you look at their story of how they got started, the whole thing around was, I think, around like the the Democrat uh, National Convention in 08 for Obama, and there was no hotels available in the city that they were in, and so that was Airbnb's calling was to give people
1: lodging. Um, cities, right? All international travel gone. No one wants to be in a highly
0: dense city, as evidenced here. Um, so you say, oh well, people want to get out of cities. That's benefiting us. People want to do longer-term stays. That's benefiting us. Basically, what Airbnb is saying is, well, now you know there still are bookings going on domestically. People are trying to escape the cities, and we can help these people that are leaving cities that need to find alternative places to stay that don't want to be, um, you know, that that want space that you know. Uh, you know, have families, but whatever it is, right? can't can't be in the city. Like me, I've left New York City. So there's a lot of people that are doing this. You also have a lot of people that are, you know able to work remotely now and you know might want to go and travel somewhere else for a month or two or three, right? The challenges I see with this is I actually don't think Airbnb is as competitively competitively positioned for long-term bookings. And I know this just anecdotally as a personal user um and and there's other studies out there as well just airbnb is expensive and if you think about air airbnb is expensive when compared to long-term booking alternatives when you look at vrbo when you look at other ways you know you can go on like trulia and find these things that are you know for for an annual rental and then you know uh people will do a short you know a few month booking and and it's free and you can contact people for free i mean there's a lot of ways Booking.com is doing a lot of things in this space. I mean, there's a lot of competition here. Airbnb really had short-term rentals locked down, right? And the whole thing of short-term rentals was it was you could have a nice stay, arguably better value, more space in a city when hotels were too expensive, and and particularly when hotels were all booked. You got know, conferences going on, right? And all these kinds. And then you had all these other expansions of the business, but but that really was the main driver of the business model. Short term rentals. That whole business just got nuked, and you know now they're trying to pivot the story, which makes sense. I mean, you got to do it. Uh, you can't go public on a you know uh, on the positioning of short term rentals. That's not going to work. I think the question is, well. Again, are they, are they well-positioned to compete on that? I, I don't think so. I think their fees are very high. The fees need to come down. The margins are lower. And why that's a problem is this.
1: Airbnb's money slide. Yikes. 2017, losing $70 uh, million. 2018, $16 million. You say, oh, well, that's not that bad. Right? 2019, $675 million. I mean, what are they doing? What are they doing in 2019? I mean, they're
0: just, uh, I, I know what they're doing. They're actually lighting money on fire. $675 million from basically $17 million the year before. And their GMV basically grew, or their revenue, not even GMV, their revenue uh, grew at almost the same rate that it did the prior year from 2017 to 2018 versus 2018 to 2019. And you, you see it, they added $500 million in their sales and marketing. They added $400 million in product development. And you compare that to the increase from 2017 to 2018, right? They added, Two hundred fifty million dollars in sales and marketing. Uh, they added one hundred eighty million dollars in product development. They went crazy. Their costs got out of control. And boy, did that come to back to bite them. And then you look at the layoffs that Airbnb did. You know, haphazardly. I think they were late to do the layoffs. I don't think they cut deep enough. It's unnecessary. You don't. You don't need to add. million in sales and marketing to grow. I mean, if that's really what you need to do. $500 million in sales and marketing to add $1.15 billion in revenue.
1: Uh, That's a horrible ROI. Like, abysmal. You know what I think it is? I think it's bad management. It is. It's bad management. Um, Look at DoorDash right look at DoorDash versus Airbnb DoorDash was able to come from
0: a minority behind position by market share and beat all all the dominant
1: uh platform players Uber Eats and Grubhub Airbnb Airbnb got out of control it, it, it's it's bad management.
0: We've talked on the show that Airbnb could have, should have gone public long before COVID. Their employees wanted them to do it. Their advisors wanted them to do it. There's countless stories about, you know, saying, hey, we should go public. Look at our growth, right? No. Instead, Airbnb decided to go and spend like $700 million on, uh, or uh, no, what was it? The $500 million increase in sales and marketing. And a 400 million dollar increase in product development to add 1.15 million dollars in revenue i mean what were you guys going to do you don't even have another business model you have experiences experiences is not really working out that hot and now your core business model just got nuked. so here's another thing the play here for airbnb is to say hey you know we're aggressively going into the hotel industry they barely penetrated the hotel industry they bought hotel tonight I haven't really heard much else that they've done with it. You've now seen some of the incumbent hotels try to launch either their own experience uh, marketplaces, launch their own, um, you know, short term rental, uh, you know, user generated kind of stay type model, Airbnb type model alternatives. So You've seen the hotels, you know, try to innovate in this space. But could Airbnb go and 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 create a hotel marketplace? uh, to you know to to get boutique and independent uh, hoteliers which is a lot of what hotel tonight is you know how is that being integrated into airbnb how are you really you know spanning out into a new business model it's actually been around since
1: 2008 yeah i guess that makes sense the, the dnc and doordash was founded in 2013 Again,
0: you look at just the cycles here. That transition to platform conglomerate, I think, is so important in just the life cycle of of these of these platform entities. Um, where you've seen, right, Uber go from ride sharing into Uber Eats, now freight and some others. They might sell off freight. We'll see. DoorDash, 2013, seven years. They have one platform business, food delivery. We'll see. Can they? You know, can the management? Right? Do you have the right management in place who can understand where to tack? Um, where you can bolt on or you know expand into another platform model that's complementary to your existing model. I mean, you got to give Travis credit for that uh, at Uber. You know, to to seed Uber Eats it really wasn't Dara didn't didn't start Uber Eats. Dara has helped to consolidate and 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 obviously push Uber Eats. He's a smart guy who knows how to run and scale uh, platform businesses. But you know, I. I From a a management evaluation of Airbnb, I don't give them very high marks, right? Where are you expanding into new platform opportunities? You've been around for 12 years. You just spent $400 million in 2019 on additional product development resources, $500 million on additional sales and marketing resources, right? What are you doing with that money are you are you rolling out new business models that are going to have insane growth like an uber eats type of uh expansion um or you know youtube your, your 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 google's youtube um i'm not seeing it and you know and and it's certainly not talked about in the s1 meanwhile you're you're now going from basically barely break even pretty much call it break-even 2018, to losing $600-plus in 2019. Why did you do that? Why did you have to do that? I don't think you had to do that. So why did you do that? And I don't see the ROI for that. And to me, that means management probably, you know, they, they need... I think they need different management. Um, why is management doing that? It just seems irresponsible. And I don't understand what they got for it. It's a pretty big bet. Uh, I mean, not pretty... It's a pretty massive bet. Um, Where's the board? You know, why did the board approve that? I just have a lot more questions and, and hesitations about what Airbnb is doing. I'm not even talking about like what they've done during COVID, which I think, as I've said, they're less well positioned to compete against a booking, a VRBO, an Expedia in long term stays, which is clearly a huge priority for them now. Um, so they I think they're less well positioned in the core business and then just the management's ability to operate and invest and, and, and be good managers. Uh, I don't know. I got a lot of questions. This S1 does not make me, um, rushing to the gate to say, yeah, let's, let's put money into this. Um, some serious questions here that, that, that really, I, you know, in my opinion really need to be answered and, and delved into much more. We'll see if we actually get those answers. Um, or if they just kind of get whitewashed over because they're Airbnb. Anyway, <clears throat> um, we are waiting to get more information on Roblox. Roblox should be filing its S1. Roblox is basically the um ready player one video game platform. It's it's a metaverse, it is video games within video games. It it allows creators to create your own worlds, and you have one character that can go in and out of all these different worlds. You have economies in these different worlds the company is on fire has meteoric growth Um, we've covered it multiple times on the show they're about to file their s1 Uh, i'm really excited about this company i'm really excited to dig in more to this company when when we get that earnings release we'll keep you posted um but i think just that that metaverse vision is very strong another big competitor in this space is minecraft um minecraft has been around for many years microsoft bought it for a few billion dollars uh when i look at the two we're going to do a deeper analysis but just just from as a player roblox just seems much more interesting um visually just from a game mechanic standpoint uh than i think what my, minecraft is kind of like the same thing from 20 years ago but now it's like running on an xbox um so that's not totally fair, but still a lot of that is still very true. Anyway, uh, more to come on Roblox that that S1 filing should be coming soon. OK, last topic, Um, there's a lot in the news about what is this thing called Smartmatic? I think I do a very good job. I'll give myself some kudos here for, for keeping the show uh, nonpartisan. You know, I think it's very easy for a lot of these um, kind of commentary shows, news shows, uh, especially if you're commenting on tech or these things, right, to to get political. Um, I'd say I do a very good job of not getting political. Now the reason why I'm covering this is because, you know, Smartmatic has come up in the news uh recently. But no one really knows what Smartmatic is, so we're going to take a look at what is Smartmatic? Smartmatic. Uh say that 3 times fast. And, you know, what what are these allegations about uh you know, voter fraud and and it's kind of storied history here. So let's just look at some of these things. Smartmatic from Wikipedia. 1997, three engineers uh, in Caracas, Venezuela. Started Smartmatic. Uh, Started in April 11th, 2000. Here's the elections that it's been used in. Uh, Africa in Uganda, Zambia, Sierra Leone, Armenia, Belgium, Brazil, Estonia, Philippines. Um, Singapore, the U.S. and in, in the Utah in Utah, Los Angeles County, and Venezuela. I think is where they got you know infamous here. The question is a lot of you know smart Smartmatic operating in the United States. There's you know this article here from the Washington Post: Giuliani's Giuliani's fantasy parade of false voter fraud claims. You know where they're saying that Smart Smartmatic. Uh, It doesn't operate in the United States, or you know, it's not really relevant. Sequoia is the key thing to look at when it comes to the Smartmatic conversation. Smartmatic in two thousand five bought Sequoia voting systems, which had contracts in seventeen states. But it sold Sequoia in two thousand seven after an investigation was launched by the Committee on Foreign Investment. That's the CFIUS. We talk about CFIUS uh, all the time. And then Dominion eventually purchased assets of Sequoia. In 2010, Dominion and ES&S are two of the top voting system companies uh, in in the U.S. I've reached out to both of their CEOs to come on the show. They have not wanted to. A lot of people are saying, "Hey, Smartmatic has been used in foreign elections. um, I don't know by who, but to influence the uh, the the voting in those uh, in those countries." The interesting thing to me is. Take smart smartmatic
1: out of the equation. I'm the CIA. I'm the CIA. I'm absolutely. I'm absolute. I absolutely have a
0: tool, whether it's smartmatic or another tool. I absolutely have a tool to influence uh, elections in other countries. I mean, that's literally the purview of the CIA. Like that's partially why I um, exist. I went back. And I was you know, looking around and here's this article written by this lady, Jennifer Cohn, attorney and election integrity advocate. I don't know exactly where she stands, but I, I, I actually think, you know, if you read through the whole article, um, she is not coming at this from a, from a pro-conservative perspective. This article is from January of 2018. That's why I put a lot of faith in this article versus um, a lot of the other things that are on the internet. And here's the interesting thing what she says is sequoia was acquired by dominion voting systems in 2010 and 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 smartmatic and so she's what she starts to go into is the relationship between sequoia and smartmatic she talks about these cia agents in here who are saying that um the election was rigged for chavez and uh, using this software um Not saying if the CIA was involved, but the CIA is saying, hey, this happened. The concerns over Smartmatic's acquisition of Sequoia triggered an investigation in the US that's back in 2006. One of those states was New York in 2008, revealed it had found problems with 50% uh, of, of these image cast optical scan machines that Sequoia's voting systems has delivered to the state so far. In 2010, a Canadian company called Dominion Voting bought Sequoia and some of the assets of another major player. I discuss both Smartmatic and Dominion, a privately held company, in further detail later in this article. What I can surmise from this is that there is voting software on these machines. Some of that voting software is built by the, the, the machine manufacturer and some of that software is provided by other third parties, companies like Smart Smartmatic. Uh, there is some kind of coupling of smartmatic with sequoia and then smartmatic apparently got out of it and then um dominion came in and took it over and you know i think that's where all of this gets kind of intermingled it's a very cobbled web but if we take a step back and think can voting software be uh hacked and corrupted uh take out whether it's in the united states or not i think internationally absolutely i think i I think this is actually what the cia is designed to do um and if you look at the the countries that smartmatic operates in internationally uh i mean those countries seem like great targets for the cia to go after um i mean this is literally the purpose of the cia right to kind of have our soft power tinker in elections i mean it it is it is literally out of a spy novel which is based in truth because i mean this is what the cia does i think the question now is how cleanly were these things divested uh was was the software actually used in the u.s was it compromised i don't know um but certainly you know if this stuff is brought to the courts you know ultimately that's a beautiful thing about the United States is that we do have three branches of government we have a system of checks and balances and and I think that's what makes our system of government the best the best in the world is that the system has worked pretty well over the past few hundred years to keep the other branches of government in check and ultimately you know this is going to the judicial branch and we'll see where this all nets out but I think you know to me the interesting thing is The idea of just, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it before, but the idea of elections being hacked internationally, just stick on that point. Um, Has the U.S. been involved in helping to hack the election counting internationally? I don't have evidence. I don't have some insider source, but I would tell you 100% the U.S. has absolutely influenced elections internationally. I mean, that is the whole purpose of the CIA and what I... What all these government agencies get billions and billions of dollars for, and don't have to, you know, document what they're using the money for. This is what um, we, the U.S., went after Russia and to a certain degree China in 2016 for influencing our elections. The U.S. is absolutely uh, guilty of doing this abroad. I think the question here, which is a huge claim, is you know, have the chickens come home to roost? Have the transgressions that we have brought um, abroad to kind of get our will and, and, and influence our will abroad. You know, have these same tools um, actually been used back in the United States against us through some, you know, interesting cobweb of what company owned this and what software was commingled into that. And fortunately, we have a court system here, which, which if the evidence is presented, we'll be able to look at the evidence and, and decide um if that is actually the case or not right you got to have proof and you got you got to show these things but i think i think the the damning or the really powerful takeaway for me is when you look at the role of technology we've talked a lot about like platform monopolies um from the CCP right and how the CCP can use these chinese tech monopolies to uh influence you know influence how people behave in china and and now in certain degrees outside of china right they can they can use these platforms to help uh, impose their will abroad. Voting software, <laughs> you know, if you have platform tech monopolies that have huge power, you got to put voting software right up there on the list of saying, you know, it, it, what is the role of government and 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 how neutral is the voting software? Because if the voting software is influenced or biased or you know in cahoots with the government, um, and that's kind of where Smartmatic really I think had its name tarnished with Venezuela. Um, and that's where the CIA agents were saying it was used to to influence these elections in Venezuela. That's not good. then then you shouldn't be using that software. just like you know, um people in the United States shouldn't want to be using uh, Chinese platform monopolies to manage their money or or you know, have their communications or you know, see their location and all these kinds of things. So, um I, it goes all in the same bucket in my opinion. Um it's something that I guess, Hasn't really been a topic of discussion in the United States, right? Voting software, who owns it? Where does it come from? What are the affiliations and all that kind of stuff? But I guess it will now. Here's the last thing that, to me, I thought was was interesting, and this is just off of the Wikipedia. Um, Here, so you got this guy, Peter uh, Neffinger, who's the chairman of the Smartmatic
1: system. This guy, also on Wikipedia was in the u.s coast guard i thought this was like a
0: you know started by venezuelans and was influencing the venezuelan election interesting
1: you got this guy um here and this to me is the part that would seem fishy to me so why is this guy being named to the joe biden presidential
0: transition Uh, Agency review team to support transition efforts related to the Department of Homeland Security. When right below that, he's the chairman of the board of directors of Smartmatic, a multinational company that specializes in building and implementing electronic voting systems, which have been, I think, pretty much proved to account for fraud, at least internationally. Not saying here in the US, but at least internationally. It's pretty much proven. It's on Wikipedia. Wikipedia does not prove things. But if you look at the other articles I was referencing, other testimony, you know, things going on in Venezuela. That's what is. That's why the U.S. kicked Smartmatic out, uh, you know, ten years ago, right? It was for those allegations. So it just seems odd to me. Why do you have these two things commingled? You know, if 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 the Biden team wants to obviously defuse any allegations of you know voter wrongdoing, I. To me, this is just a bad decision on optics. Um, We'll see. Ultimately, it's something that's going to have to go to the courts to see where this thing nets out from from a voter fraud standpoint, but just from the optics of it. Seems like an ill-advised appointment to make. Um, Very much so too close to home. I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, actually got Peter off of the transition team now that I think this stuff coming to light just doesn't look good. Um, But we'll see. Anyway, voting systems abroad and and influencing elections. I mean, yeah, it's a CIA novel. Uh, but that's what the CIA does. So, hopefully this has not come back into the US. We'll see. It's up to the courts, but certainly abroad the US does this and I'm sure many large defense spy agencies uh, are doing similar things, right? This is this is kind of the art of of spy war. But uh yeah, kind of an interesting thought. Anyway, that's that's where we'll leave it today on winner take all. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you later.